0: That's www.activeskinrepair.com code VILLAGE for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 139. I'm so jazzed about this episode because we get to share a snapshot of the seed certification workshops with you. You're going to hear a little bit of each workshop. We have five different instructors. There's myself. Lori Goodrich is an occupational therapist. Emily Lesher is a speech-language pathologist. Jasmine Price has a master's in early childhood and is currently a PhD candidate. And Dr. Lynetta Willis is a psychologist. These humans are so incredible and such beautiful teachers. I'm really, really pumped to share these workshops with you. I'm so jazzed that they're live And I want to break down really what the SEED certification is. When I was a teacher, I yearned for more support. I found myself going to conferences and workshops and leaving and going back to the classroom and being fired up and then just falling right back into patterns and routines or wanting to ask questions or needing support to implement it. And so the SEED certification is the culmination of my experience and then interviewing teachers. We spent a year interviewing teachers and directors, home care providers to find out what you really needed. Where did you feel like the market was already oversaturated with support and what was it lacking? We took all of that information and created these eight workshops. It's a total of seven hours of professional development. And when you become SEED certified, You get ongoing support as long as you're SEED certified. So you can reach out to our team with questions. You can watch any parts of the workshop back. You get support tools to help you implement this jazz in the classroom. And every parent within your school gets access to our Tiny Humans Big Emotions program. The SEED certification is available in English and in Spanish. And we have a team to support you in both languages as you do this work. If new teachers join your school while you're SEED certified, they get access to these workshops for free. We want everyone to be on the same page. Before, I would go and do a presentation for a school, and just whoever could show up that night were the only ones who were receiving that information. And this, for us, was a more comprehensive way to provide professional development and support teachers on this journey. We have eight workshops within the SEED certification. You're going to hear a snapshot of each of them. Let me tell you the eight. We have emotion coaching for emotion processing, sensory integration for all classrooms, so going beyond sensory bins and really being able to support kiddos in calming their nervous system, Boundaries, discipline, and visual aids for emotionally supportive classrooms. Self-awareness and bias in the classroom. Self-care and boundaries for teachers. Supporting the development of children's regulation and language through play. Anti-bias curriculum in action. So that we can raise anti-racist humans from the start with anti-racist classrooms and connecting with families. It takes a village and we want to collaborate with families and welcome diversity. Each workshop comes with an assessment at the end. When you complete the assessment, you get your professional development certificate. The certification was created by teachers for teachers. It's no fluff, no busy work. It's truly eight workshops to support you on this journey. It's what I wanted as a teacher, to be totally honest. It's what I wish I had access to. If you are a parent and you're tuning in, head on over to our website at seedandso.org, And there's a page there for you to download the toolkit to submit to your director, your child's program if you want your kid's school to become seed certified as well, we also have a scholarship program that's going to be fully funded by our village, all donation-based, and 100% of the scholarship contributions will go toward schools becoming seed certified who are serving marginalized communities. So if a school has at least 50% of its student body BIPOC community, if they're serving low-income families, we want to make sure that they have access to these tools and support and resources. Schools can apply for our scholarship program at seedschools.org as well as for the SEED certification. And parents, we are so grateful to you for helping us fund the scholarship program. Like I said, it's fully donation-based, and 100% of those proceeds go to the schools receiving certification. All right, folks, I'm so jazzed to share these with you, so let's dive in. Here's an excerpt from Emotion Coaching for Emotion Processing by yours truly, Alyssa Blass Campbell. So often we're focused with the tiny humans on self-reg and empathy. We want them to be able to calm down and be kind. (laughs) I totally get that. The thing is, this all starts with self-awareness. We can't regulate our body unless we know what we're feeling. It starts with co-regulation. A dysregulated adult cannot regulate a dysregulated child. In order to help a child find their calm, we need to find ours first. Then we can teach them how to regulate their central nervous system and find their calm. The point isn't that the tiny humans won't experience hard emotions. The point is that when they do, they have a toolbox to turn to to regulate their central nervous system, to find their calm, and to process that experience. This can get uncomfortable because it will mean that we're allowing kids to experience their emotions. When we're looking at this, remember it's not just those three and four year olds who can talk to us with their words. This starts so young with our babies too and our toddlers. I was in a classroom with one-year-olds. They were one and they would turn two with me. And this little girl was about 20 months old. And she was building on the table with magnetiles tiles and she built this whole thing up and somebody bumped into the table and it crashed. So she's melting and I got down on her level, you know, like we do, I'm going to connect with you. And I go to validate her and she slapped me across the face. I was like, um, excuse me, what? It is so hard to look at a child who just slapped you across the face and be calm. Everything inside of me was not calm. And I looked at her and I said, the only nice thing I could say in the moment, I said, I gotta go to the bathroom, I'll be right back. And I turned to my co-teacher and I was like, I have to tap out for a sec. And they popped into the bathroom and I knew that I could not emotion coach her. I couldn't support her until my central nervous system was calm. I also knew that she's a kiddo who loves to snuggle, and she was probably gonna want a hug to feel calm, and it's really hard to hug someone who just slapped you across the face. So I knew it was my job to get calm enough to do that. So for me, I do exercises where I'll squeeze my hands and let them go, I'll squeeze my toes, I'll work all the way up my body and squeeze and let go, and I have mantras or phrases that remind me that it's my job to get calm for them, and that it's not intentional. The key here is that she didn't hit me because she wanted to hurt my body. She hit me because her body was dysregulated. She reacted in the only way that she could in that moment, just like sometimes we yell or we lose our cool, not because we want to, but because we're reacting from a dysregulated place. I don't need to go in and let her know it hurts me when you hit my body. She knows that. She knows that she's not allowed to hit. She knows that it hurts. It wasn't what she wanted to do. And when we can believe that about the tiny humans, that their intentions are good, it's a game-changer for how we respond. Emotional development and social connection are at the core of building cognitive development. So when we're gonna work on higher concepts or we wanna work on content that they're gonna take in or learn, we first have to start with meeting their emotional needs and connecting with them, making sure that they know how to show up in a group socially. What does it look like to be in a room with somebody who wants the same toy that you have? How do we problem solve those things? Those are the things we want kids leaving early childhood classrooms and heading into kindergarten knowing. It doesn't matter if they know their letters or their numbers. They know how to spell or read, etc. I don't care how many dinosaur names they know. What I want them to know is what happens when I feel mad? What do I do when I'm feeling sad? How does that feel in my body? Who's gonna help me? Who's there to support me on this journey? Give yourself grace. When I first started out doing this work, one of the hardest things was giving myself grace because I knew that each moment was an opportunity for connection. And so when I missed one, I'd leave the day, beat myself up. We're never going to walk away with a perfect day. And that's okay. We're going to model for kiddos that it's okay to make mistakes. We're going to model for them what this rupture and repair looks like. We can pop down to kiddos and say, man, I just got really frustrated and I was feeling overwhelmed and I yelled, I'm going to try and calm my body so that I can help you. This excerpt is from Lori Goodrich, occupational therapist on sensory regulation in the classroom, looking beyond sensory bins to calm the nervous system.
1: Sensory integration is the organization of information from the senses for use in adapting to environmental demands. Wow, that's a broad definition because sensory integration is a lot of things. The nuts and bolts of it are we take in information from our senses, it goes into our nervous system, which sort of filters and determines what that information means, and we use it for a productive output. That productive output could be anything. It could be I am paying attention in the classroom and learning. I am figuring out a new motor skill at soccer practice. It could be anything. So in the nuts and bolts of that, I love this definition. It's how we make sense and respond to the information that we receive through our senses. And all of us are doing it, I can say this with 100% certainty, we're all doing it right now. You know, our bodies are filtering out excess sound like our neighbors mowing the lawn or the, you know, your air conditioning sound, your body's saying that important, don't pay attention to it. Our bodies are figuring out how to coordinate movement, maybe to take notes or to drink from a, a glass, to have a drink of water while you're listening. These are all examples of sensory integration working well. So we're doing this all the time, every day. You know, the term sensory is used in a lot of different ways and environments. I think it's been really exciting that it's um, more out there in the community. I do see it sometimes being in select ways, like in school sensory tables, which are like tactile bins or... A lot of people are more clued into things like, you know, a sensitive to clothing or sounds. And those are all good examples of some strategies and some challenges within the sensory realm that are more specific to one sensory system, like the tactile system. And so today... It's great to take that information but also realize we're going to be using some of that and pushing out to a broader lens of thinking more broadly about sensory integration to understand a variety of our sensory systems and what they are and why they matter and how they are super essential for development so most of us learn in school that there are five senses which are those first five smell taste hearing vision and touch which are all true we do have those five senses We also have three other additional senses that we're going to talk about a little bit here today. They're your proprioceptive sense, which is your body awareness sense. It kind of lets you know where you are in relation to yourself. There's receptors in your muscles and joints and your fascia that tell you and give you information all the time. It lets you do things like walk up the stairs without looking at your feet or get dressed without having to think of where your arm is. So super important for understanding your body. The next sense is your vestibular sense, which is your movement sense, and this is comes from receptors in your inner ear, and it responds to movement, um, it responds to gravity, and your position, the position of your head, really important for balance and for sort of feeling grounded and safe in the, to the earth, um, because it's responding to gravity. And then the eighth sense, we're not going to spend too much time talking on because it seems like it's its own separate topic almost, but I think because we're talking about emotional capacities here, it's worth mentioning. It's your interoceptive sense, and that this sense is your sense of internal state of your body. So, you know, am I full? Am I hungry? Do I have to go to the bathroom? Am I hot or cold? It's giving you clues about all those different experiences. And the reason I feel like it's really important with some of the, the emotional intelligence work is... Interception is a cornerstone of the feeling sensations, which can later be connected with emotion that kind of gives, gives you a clue. So, you know, if you're if I had butterflies in my stomach, I might be thinking, oh, I'm nervous about something like something in my body is giving me a clue about my emotional capacity and understanding. So our bodies are constantly saying that's important. Pay attention to it. That's not important. Filter it out. So it's sort of like your filtering system of, you know. My, my neighbors mowing the lawn, my body says, not important. Don't pay attention to it. You don't have to be fully oriented to that. Or like, you know, if I'm sitting on something that's a slightly different texture, not important, you don't have to pay attention to it.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out. And it's been a tough transition Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P com slash voices. Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six-plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time-traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and mealtimes, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods.
1: This is often the area that most people are familiar with with sensory integration, because when it's not working, it shows up in things like, you know, a child that doesn't like being messy or is really scared of sound or certain, um, you know, doesn't want to get dressed to go outside because they don't like the way things feel. This is a really, really important part of feeling safe and comfortable in the world because it lets us have expected reactions to everyday sensations that should not be experienced as being noxious and uncomfortable. And we'll get into what this looks like when it's not working well. But it really gives you that sense of like, I'm safe, I'm comfortable most of the time. So it's really important to think about these in both directions. You know, how does uh, emotional intelligence impact sensory integration and the other way around? And they are all very interconnected.
0: This excerpt is Boundaries, Discipline, and Visual Aids for Emotionally
2: Supportive Classrooms by Alyssa Blask Campbell.
0: We all come to adulthood with different ideas about boundaries and discipline. We are all coming to the table with different social programming. Uh, This is informed from our childhood and how we were raised, as well as what we've learned along the way. Sometimes we see a pendulum swing here where we were perhaps raised with very strict boundaries and we might see a pendulum swing to very loose boundaries. The same thing can happen with discipline where we can see how we were raised and what we've learned in the process in early ed. All that comes together to inform how we show up with the tiny humans. To inform what our triggers are around boundaries and discipline. What we believe to be true or best and how we think it should be carried out. Boundaries provide safety and structure. Without boundaries, kids feel like they have to be in control and that's an overwhelming amount of responsibility for a child. I want to make sure that we are being clear about our expectations and boundaries with kiddos so that everyone's on the same page. Boundaries are not to be used as threats. Like, if you don't do this, then I'm gonna do this. Boundaries are a way to communicate our expectations. For example, if you say, I'm gonna get snack ready and then I'll come play with you in block area, And then you get snack ready, but you don't go over and play in black area. Maybe you're like, oh, I'll take this couple minutes to clean this side of the room up or hang up these coats from after we just came in outside or do something else. If we don't follow through with what we said, then we aren't building trust. They don't trust that what we say we mean. What about accountability or consequences? How will they learn that their actions affect others? Okay, first and foremost, we have to remember that their behavior, it's not about you. They're not doing something because of you. They're responding to emotions or to a physical need the only way that they know how. So as long as you see the behavior as something they're choosing to do to hurt somebody, to be rude to you, etc., then yeah, you're going to be stuck in a punishment reward system. You're going to want to make sure that they know that that's not okay. When you can look beyond the behavior, when you can see, oh man, they were feeling really embarrassed, then you can notice, oh, it turns out they don't know what to do. When they're feeling embarrassed, I haven't taught them that yet. They're not sure what to do when they're feeling sad or disappointed. So they lashed out in the only way that they know how, or when they have a hard feeling and they get that rush of cortisol or adrenaline, they don't know how to calm their body before solving the problem. So often for adults, we aren't practicing this stuff, but we're expecting kids to do it. We're allowed to lose our cool or to snap or to yell and react. But when they don't regulate and respond with intention, they're supposed to be in trouble. When we can respond beyond the behavior, we're going to set and hold that boundary such as I won't let you hit me. I won't let you hurt my body. We can set and hold that boundary and then go deeper. When you respond to that emotion or that physical need, it seems like your body really needs to move right now. Would you like to do 10 big jumps before we talk about it? Before we solve this problem? Maybe that is solving the problem. Maybe what they're communicating to you is, my body needs some input. My body needs to move. We all want to set kiddos up for success in our classrooms. One of the key components of doing this is pre-teaching. So just like we as adults use calendars or to-do lists or schedules or timers or clocks or alarm clocks, we have all these things that help us organize the day so that we don't have to keep track of everything in our brain all the time. We want to give kiddos these same gifts. We want to give them visual aids that will support them in moving through the day so that they don't have to keep track of everything. This workshop is on self-awareness and identifying our biases in the classroom from psychologist, Dr. Lynetta Willis.
3: Dr. Haim Ganat, teacher and parenting pioneer once said, I've come to a frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element in the classroom. It's my personal approach that creates the climate. It's my daily mood that makes the weather. As a teacher, I possess a tremendous power to make a child's life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a child humanized or dehumanized. Dr. Gannat describes this conclusion as frightening. And whether you agree with his use of that word or not, One superpower that you can cultivate to help you wield this extraordinary power is self-awareness. The superpower of self-awareness can gift you with the insight you need to help your students thrive and the power you need to remain sane. This self-empowerment system for educators and child caregivers like you who are dedicated to building stronger, more compassionate relationships with young people is so powerful. Through the Conscious Educator Awareness Triangle, you'll have the opportunity to focus on and explore three key areas that, when understood on a deeper level, will empower you to create understanding with your students and minimize interpersonal barriers that get in the way. The first point on the triangle is the intergenerational awareness. Messages and experiences passed down from one generation to the next are deeply embedded in our psyche. And the more generations those messages have been passed through, the easier it is to miss the impact they have on our lives and relationships. In this first area, you'll gain deep insight into the ways in which messages passed down to you as a child impact the expectations you place on your students and how you engage them. Together, we'll demystify racism and heighten your awareness of the racial biases you carry so you can create ways to minimize the unhelpful impact these biases have on your connection to your students. More specifically, you'll get clear on those things in your life that deplete you and those things that feed or energize you so you can be your best self for yourself and for your students. The points on the Conscious Educator Awareness Triangle is, in part, inspired by research conducted by psychologist Dan Siegel. Dr. Siegel summed up decades of research with his statement, the best predictor of a child's well-being is the parent's self-understanding. Now, while he was clearly referring to parents, I believe that this quote applies equally to teachers. In many cases, you spend more time with your students than anyone in their lives. And in some cases, you are the most stable presence in those children's lives. So in essence, your self-understanding or self-awareness is the most powerful and important school supply that you can take into your classroom every day. Certain words, actions, feelings, and experiences of your students may be a trigger for you. And that trigger may awaken within you strong, difficult feelings, such as powerlessness, sadness, anger, or fear. And in response to those feelings, you may react in less than ideal ways. It happens to us all. So no shame spiraling allowed. But the good news is that you don't have to remain stuck in these triggered loops. And you also don't have to spend years in therapy trying to eliminate your triggers to feel like a better teacher. Through the last point on the conscious educator awareness triangle, emotional awareness, you can become aware of your triggers, aware of your stories, and aware of those things in the classroom and in your life that keep you in your window of tolerance or leave you living on the ledge. How do our triggers connect to our legacies and socialization scripts? Our triggered reactions are influenced by our personal histories, cultural biases, socialization scripts, and legacy trees. And an unhelpful triggered reaction towards a student can absolutely undermine the connection you have with that student. But if you're aware of your triggers, you can deal with them before you overreact and repair relationships with your students when you do overreact. Always remember that self-care and self-compassion will directly impact how much care and compassion you are able to bring into your classroom. So make sure you're giving yourself what you need.
0: Here's a snapshot into Self-Care and Boundaries to Prevent Teacher Burnout by Alyssa Blass Campbell. How many times have we heard this, right? Where you have to put your oxygen mask on first. You have to take care of yourself in order to show up for other people. This is true here too. In order to show up for those tiny humans, we need to take care of ourselves. We need to start to notice what it feels like to be regulated, to be calm, to be at like a two, a three, or a four versus when we're dysregulated and we're ready to explode at an eight, a nine, or a 10. So what is self-care? What does this look like to put into practice? We have made self-care out to be this big thing like a getaway weekend or a mani-pedi or a bubble bath. And the reality is that self-care is taking care of yourself every single day so that you can be regulated. A dysregulated adult cannot regulate a dysregulated human. For me, this also looked like I realized that every couple hours, I needed like a minute where there was not a child on my body, where somebody wasn't asking me for something, where I wasn't looking at my phone either, where I was just pausing and breathing. And so I planned this out with my co-teacher where I could go to the bathroom Every couple hours. And it wouldn't be like a crazy long trip. It's not like a 15-minute bathroom trip. But I would go to the bathroom every couple hours and I would just breathe. I would close my eyes while I was in there. I wouldn't bring my phone in and I would just calm for a minute. And so we were sitting down, we were looking at the system. We're like, okay, well, a lot of these things have to happen, right? Like Kids are gonna get dropped off, they have to get diapers changed, we have to do snack, and so what would it look like for me to take care of myself in this time? And I realized that it would be really helpful if right when kids sat down for a snack and everyone was sitting for a minute, if I could just pop out, take a bathroom break, and breathe for a minute. Just a little bit of time makes such a big difference. That's the thing with self-care. I think when we make it out to be this big thing that has to happen, it feels unattainable. What could you do throughout the day to take care of yourself? Maybe it's turning down the lights when you're having lunch to just lower that energy. Maybe it's having a structure throughout the day that supports you being able to take a little break or rotating with your co-teacher of like who sets up for snack or lunch so that you can have a little break for a minute where somebody isn't asking you for something. When you take care of yourself, you can be regulated. You can come from a place of calm so that you can respond with intention rather than reacting. This isn't something that'll happen all day long. Remember, this is not about perfection. It's about progress. There are going to be times where we react instead of respond. There are going to be times when we feel dysregulated. That's okay. It was a learning curve for me to realize I could advocate for myself in the workplace. I had to learn that It's okay for me to take care of myself. It's actually really important for me to take care of myself if I'm going to show up for the tiny humans. This isn't always easy to do. I think often as early childhood educators, we get into this field because we care, because we're givers, because we love caring for others, because it comes so naturally for us to be in community with other people. And it can feel hard to take care of ourselves. It can feel hard to potentially disappoint somebody when we aren't going to show up at work or to feel like we're letting our kids or our families down or what's it going to look like our kids going to be okay with somebody else in the classroom I know these are all thoughts that have gone through my mind over the years when I've taken time for myself to take care of myself it's important that we rewrite these narratives I know it's so hard to do It's so hard for us as givers to do, and it's so vital. You are worth taking care of. Even if it's an inconvenience to somebody else, you can call in sick. You can schedule vacation and pay time off. You can do it respectfully. We can be respectful of one another and still take care of ourselves. It's so frustrating to spend the money and effort to buy your kids clothes just to have them grow out of the size within a week, or have your kids complain that they itch, pinch, or just aren't comfortable. If you're with me on this, you've got to check out Posh Peanut. Their sensitive, skin-friendly clothes are made from viscose from bamboo, stretch with your kid as they grow, and they're also made to last. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, super cute clothing for kids and families. It is the softest thing, y'all. The design is all done in-house with different patterns, and it came in the mail, and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to wear this for myself every day. Their luxe women's pajamas and robes were all that I wanted to wear postpartum for nursing and hanging out on the couch with Mila. It helps so much that the fabric is breathable and chemical-free, which means they're delicate against Mila's sensitive skin, too, and I totally get why Posh Peanut is loved by over 1 million parents. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code VILLAGE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash VILLAGE and use promo code VILLAGE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash VILLAGE, promo code VILLAGE.
2: Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clux. You've come to the right place. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Next
3: up,
0: we have Supporting the Development of Children's Regulation and Language Through Play with Speech Language Pathologist Emily Lesher.
4: Why should we care about play? It is well known and documented that play supports us to learn and allows you to develop social skills, language, literacy, cognition, problem solving imaginative thinking, emotional development, self-confidence, creativity, and more. So thinking about play, as a speech pathologist, I use a commonly used developmental play scale called the Westby Play Scale, which was developed by Carol Westby, a speech pathologist. This scale will help us as we look at the different stages of play being developed, and we're going to think about how that ties to our communication and our overall regulation skills. As children mature, they gain access to more sophisticated strategies. Lauren always talks about this book, Eleven, and how a child on their 11th birthday is also a 10-year-old, and then a 9-year-old, and even a 1-year-old. So the same as that, a child is also able to access all of the skills they had at the age of 1, at the age of 2, at the age of 10, at the age of 11. I hear a lot of times from families, they did that yesterday, or why can't they do it today? I know they know how to do that, they just don't want to. But a child cannot always perform at their top level or show their highest level of skill because it takes a lot of time and effort for a child to learn what to do. Even us as adults don't have that expectation. It would be like asking the top marathon runner in the world to run their fastest time every day they go out for a run or thinking about you'll be able to knit a sweater the first time you learn how to knit. What does a symbolic player look like? At this stage, a parent or caregiver can drop their child off at school, and they will start to have an understanding that they will be back at the end of the day to pick them up. And this is because children have an internal representation of what an object or a person is, and they can visualize that in their head. It is through this memory of that object that they don't have to see it to know what it is, what it does, and how it relates to other people and other objects. Now here's this regulation according to social expectation. At this stage, children have a sense of understanding of predictable things and things they see consistently, but their ability to generalize this to new environments are poor, as they are still not very good at understanding the links between one environment. This is why they can regulate themselves and do what is expected when their routine is the same, but as soon as something in that routine changes, they might not be able to. Even a small change, like a different parent bringing them to school that day or having a different snack during snack time can affect their ability to maintain a regulated state doing what is expected. Let's think about a scenario that has maybe happened to you. You're in the pretend play kitchen and a few kids are acting out an elaborate play scheme of restaurants. These kids are well into these higher stages of play and you would expect kind of a higher level of regulation and being able to maintain that state for a lot longer. There's one child who comes in and starts taking the toy food and throwing it. And we have to think about what do we do in this moment? Who do we focus on? Which child needs the most level of support? Is it the child that is taking the food or running through the blocks? Or is it another child that screams no and tells them to go away? Or is it the child that's crying because their food was just taken away from their hand? We have to think about who do we focus on, which child needs the most level of support, can any of the children problem solve this on their own, can we initiate a new activity and then fade support, or how do we add different levels of play to this activity? Can we support them to figure out what to do next? Can I use job talk to support? Can I give a child a job to be a cook or a server or a customer so that they know what to do? Or they might need more support by giving them a pan and being told, here's a pot to make some mac and cheese. Or they might need to be shown taking a spoon and stirring in a pot to cook something. Here's something you could do. Or they might need a choice to help get them started. Would you want to make the food or serve the food? So that way you can kind of incorporate that child into the play so that they're not running through the play. But that child might not be in the same stage as all the other kids. How do we incorporate them into that play scheme? Thinking about a child in the exploratory play stage, so they're exploring toys with their senses. Can you give them the same toys and the same objects that the other kids are playing with? They might have a spatula or some toy food. And can they touch and explore those things? Can they start to bang those things? Can they use those same objects so they're incorporated into the play? And functional players, so remember that they are playing with objects as they are supposed to. Can that child push a pretend play cart around? Can they take the pretend food and put it inside the cart, put things in, take things out? Can they throw the food into the cart to later be cooked by the other kids?
0: This excerpt is from Anti-Bias Curriculum in Action for Anti-Racist Classrooms with Jasmine Price, Masters in Early Childhood Education.
5: Think back to a time that a topic of race or difference came up within your classroom. How did it make you feel to discuss it? How did you or your colleague approach the conversation? So I want you to think back to a time that you remember that maybe was uncomfortable or that maybe influenced the way that you approach anti-bias and difference now within your classroom. How did you navigate it? How do you feel about it now? We are going to use that as a guide as we continue on through today's presentation. So, what is anti bias curriculum? Anti bias curriculum is an approach to early childhood education that sets forth values based principles and methodology in support of respecting and embracing differences and acting against bias. And unfairness. Please note that when thinking about anti bias curriculum, it is more than just approaching topics of race within the classroom. Though race is very important and children communicate about it on a daily basis, we have to also broaden our perspectives of anti bias education. And children bring many diverse perspectives, cultures, family structures, and home lives to the classroom. All of these topics and more can be approached using an anti-bias approach and framework. The vision of anti-bias work continued is that children and adults know how to respectfully and easily live, learn, and work together in diverse and inclusive environments. All families have the resources they need to fully nurture their children. All children and families live in safe, peaceful, healthy, comfortable housing and neighborhoods. And so we know that oftentimes within our classroom, we come into contact with children who may not have all of the points listed underneath the vision. They may not have that stability within their lives or they do bring a diverse perspective into your classroom. So this is just a framework that was developed as an initial base way to think about anti-bias work, but what we should do within our classrooms is create an environment where children have a sense of belonging and are able to experience affirmation of their identities um, and acceptance of their cultural ways of being. So here's some common thoughts from teachers when approaching topics of diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-bias within their classroom and how to shift your thinking. Number one, but my children are too young to approach topics of difference. Before children reach school age, they have already began to form ideas about race and its attributes and previous research has found expressions of bias in children as young as ages three to five. What this tells us is that the earlier we begin to approach topics of difference within child appropriate ways, the more will impact the children in our classrooms, their peers, and even their families. Before I started working so closely with children, I too thought that this was a very young age to approach topics of differences And I sometimes felt very nervous bringing those things up within the classroom. I then began to realize that just like we notice things about each other or about everyone that we come into contact with, children are noticing those things. And maybe even more so because at such a young age, they are trying to build the foundation of how they perceive everything happening around them. To not approach these topics with children in a way that increases their knowledge on things that may be different than what they know is leaving children to wonder about these things and to maybe only form their own perceptions based on what they are hearing from just their family or based on what they are hearing and just their community. So we know that as teachers, we have to be able to provide children the opportunity to have diverse perspectives and to understand that it is okay to have these perspectives.
0: Our last workshop is on connecting with families with Alyssa Blass Campbell, Masters in Early Childhood Education. I believe that it truly takes a village to raise a child, that we aren't meant to do this alone. When we look cross-culturally, most cultures around the world raise children together, not in isolation. You are a very important part of each family's village. There can be shame or judgment about parents who are sending their kids to childcare or how long their kids are in childcare. What comes up for you as I talk about connecting with families? Are there families that are coming to your head that feel harder for you to connect with or with whom you often feel like you're butting heads? What biases are you bringing to the table that are informing judgments? And actions or reactions. You are the expert in child development, and this family is the expert on their child. This family has been there through the late nights. They've learned their child's favorite lovey or how their kiddo best falls asleep. They know their allergies. They know every single measurement their height and their size of their head and the percentile they're in they know every detail they've studied this child's face as they've rocked them in their arms to fall asleep when you are no longer their teacher the parent will still be the human that this kid can turn to the parent or the caregiver will be their main attachment figures you will also be an attachment figure While they're in your care and beyond. But the parents are the expert on their child. This doesn't mean that they're an expert in child development or speech language development or occupational therapy or child psychology. We, as teachers, get to be a resource for parents. We get to be an educator to provide other resources for parents. But what's key to remember is that we are not the expert on their child. We are the experts in child development. Part of connecting with families is making sure they feel safe and seen. That our classrooms are not centered on one culture, but rather inclusive and representative of the cultures within. This should evolve each year. Your signs might be in different languages. You might have books that are celebrating different cultural traditions or holidays. If you have a family that celebrates Chinese New Year, how is that represented within the classroom? Do your books represent other cultures as well? Not just pictures that have people who are not just white. Not just representation of Black, Indigenous, people of color in photos. But do you have books that talk about other cultures and traditions? Do you acknowledge them? When we ignore holidays and traditions in schools, we erase parts of culture rather than learning about and celebrating them. Every single human has biases in social programming. We are all coming to the table with a map inside of us from our childhood. As things come up with families, it's crucial that we are being mindful of our biases and social programming. I want you to outline what is your transition plan for families? What do you have in place to support them? What questions will you ask what support will you provide? You have done this so many times with so many families, but this is somebody's baby. They're trusting you with their child's life. It's not a small deal for them. And they might be really excited to have their kiddo in child care and still feel sad to say goodbye or nervous about how their kiddo's gonna do. We get to show up in collaboration with these families. Letting them know we are grateful to be a part of their village and that their kiddo is safe with you.
5: It was truly
0: an honor to put this seed certification together. It's what I wanted and needed as a teacher and a director, and I'm so jazzed to bring it to you. If you are interested in your school becoming seed certified, head to seedschools.org where you can get more information and apply. If you're a parent and you're interested in your child's school becoming seed certified, head to seedandso.org and click the Parents button under Seed Certification. It'll take you to a page that guides you through how to send the parent toolkit over to your child's school. We have a scholarship program for schools who are serving marginalized communities. Our scholarship program is made possible by all of you. It is strictly our village who's contributing to the program. If you would like to make a one-time donation, or become a monthly contributor to the scholarship program, our goal is to support 25 schools by the end of 2021 who don't have access to the funding for the SEED certification. We will be prioritizing schools whose student body is at least 50% black, indigenous, or children of color. When you head to that parent page on seedandsew.org under the Seed Certification, you can sign up to join our scholarship program and support schools in accessing high-quality care. Thank you for helping us raise emotionally intelligent humans. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow: Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars, and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you.
6: Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free